Today we've got Stephen Bragg from Pitcher Partners. Stephen explains some of the key challenges in the auto industry and provides great advice for OEMs and dealers and consumers. Let's jump into it. With 30 years experience in auto logistics and state-of-the-art locations in five major Australian cities, Precar Fleet Services are a premier all-in-one solutions provider for commercial vehicle fleet operators, leasing companies and original equipment manufacturers. Please visit precar.com.au and click on the link to Fleet Services. I've been a big fan of yours for some time. Oh, thank you. I like your research and I like the way you, you go about it. It's an honour to have you on our show. I do tend to have opinions and I'm not afraid to use say what they are. <laughs> so, I don't know if you saw the recent uh, article in Go Auto about the bins MD writing to the dealer council. I'm very curious to get your thoughts on that, Stephen. My biggest concern is that dealers run the risk of being marginalized by the OEMs. And I think how this happens is, is through the agency model. And how that is, is because dealers are basically handing over their customer base to the OEMs for, for what is no compensation. And the OEM keeps them on as agents until they consider them unnecessary to be remaining in the value chain. I think the, the key here is, is that dealers forget the value that they bring to the table. Um, I don't think they do, but I think it needs to be said. So they've got three main things going for them. They've got large customer bases that exist within their workshops. They have very strategic and well-established facilities and key locations to service their customer base. And they've got the people in processes and they know how to sell, particularly they know how to sell cars, obviously, and take care of their customers. In reality, what the OEM, in my view, and, and it is reductive, but what the OEM brings to the table is stock. When you think about it, really, all the OEM brings to the table for, for the dealer is stock to sell. So if I was a dealer or if I was a dealer council or if I was a if I was the A, ADA, or if I was the ADA board, I'd say, well, what would Jerry Harvey do in this situation? Rather than handing his business on a platter to the to his suppliers, think about Jerry Harvey in this situation. Jerry would take what are his three key assets, the customer base, the, the strategic and well-established facilities and people and processes that know how to sell. He would then go to the suppliers and negotiate a deal. He would sell that stock in his stores. I think the important thing here, in particular, when the OEMs, especially agency OEMs, start coming to the dealers and saying, there's no need for a dealer council, or we don't need to talk to you, we want to just deal with you individually, to me, that, that raises a lot of red flags. So I think the AADA and the dealers need to create what, what I would be, it needs to be some sort of buying body. They create their own Harvey Norman platform of by, by pulling their customers, their premises, their locations, their facilities, and their people to create a massive buying group take that and then you go out and source the stock. So think about the, the, the two sides of the coin. Stock without customers is a liability. Customers without stock is an opportunity. So dealers actually have the opportunity and, and they have the upper hand in this situation as long as they don't give it away. If all the dealers in Australia basically went and created a buying group, offered exclusive representation in their showrooms to OEMs that they want to represent. So then rather than you know representing 70 brands in Australia to sell a million cars, we're, we're representing 20 brands in Australia to sell a million cars. I think it, it gives a much better outcome for, for the dealer, gives a much better outcome for the OEM, much better outcome for the customer because you actually get OEMs and dealers who, who have enough volume and I guess scale to be good. So in perspective, put it in, think of Toyota. Toyota is probably the only brand in Australia that has enough volume to actually act like an OEM versus other OEMs that have are represented in Australia and they might sell a thousand units, 2000 units, 10,000 units. What's the cutoff for an OEM to make it viable? And that's an easy equation for an accountant to work out. I could tell you what that answer is. And most of the OEMs know what that answer is because outside the top 10 doesn't really make a lot of sense but you'd probably say the top 20 it would, would, would be the cutoff you can actually get product to the market which makes a lot of sense 
dealers could then, and OEMs could actually price the product at the right levels for the market to make it competitive. Think of it this way. Imagine being Toyota and on 1 July, every existing dealer stopped selling your cars and they started selling MGs, for example. How long would it take them to actually replicate the dealer channel that they built? They actually can't. I don't think think you could rebuild the Toyota dealer network in Australia. All of the digital marketing in the world just won't sell them these cars. So I think the important bit is the, the dealers have all the power in this in this situation. They just don't realize it. That's my point around this whole thing. Because I think, and I think the AADA were trying to say it in a much nicer way. But honestly, OEMs without dealers, in my view, it, it's a big issue. Selling is a, is, a, is a people business, and dealerships and dealer businesses are are, is, are people businesses. So forever, you're going to need this this interaction that that will have a transaction between people. And as much as people say that they won't, history has proven, and even the future has proven that people want to buy cars from people. And they actually want to see the car before they buy it, and that's 100 true, and it will be for as long as you know, as long as the sun keeps coming up and, and going down every day. Yeah, and I think that last point is exactly it: people buy from people. And I think that's the most important point. There's that relationship. If you don't have the relationship, there's nothing. It's pretty much standard for us, isn't it? It's uh, numbers, numbers, game, people, business. Yeah. So it's all about the numbers, but the numbers don't happen unless the people do business with people. Yeah. Whether it's B2B, B2C, B2G, it still is people doing business with people. People buy from people they trust. People buy from people they like. Relationships are important. Honesty and trust ultimately comes down to trust. We'll trust someone that you can look in the eye and do a deal with uh, as opposed to do an online digital transaction that, mm, am I going to get the car? Uh, and I, I totally agree. I, a lot of the research is taking place online. I think a lot of the transaction will happen online, but there will always still be a dealership. There'll still always be a, a rooftop. There'll be a delivery point. I actually don't think cars will be delivered to houses. To me, but logically doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I, I get the idea of, of when it becomes autonomous. I, I think autonomous potentially, electric and autonomous would completely change the game. I think electric is going to change the game for everyone. And I think that that's the next big move. And that, that's the next big change that everyone needs to be aware of as, as in dealers and OEMs. When it does go electric and autonomous, then yet yeah, the, the world's changed. We're not driving cars anymore. It's a whole different ball game. You actually don't need to own a car. You're basically buying a service, um, some sort of mobility play. But yeah, up until that point, which I think is a long way away, based on everything I've read recently, it's at least you know 30 years, maybe 40 years away before we see robo taxis out and about. I think 70% of batteries are made out of China. So basically, the batteries are the same in every car. Yeah. And so there's all become a, basically a commodity. So you just order your car and it will get delivered to you and you change it in two years or three years. And they send another one. They're not even sure whether the electric vehicles is a full solution because of the, all the issues around mining. I read two articles recently that, that, that go to your point there. So Musk and his team have apparently worked out how to produce electric vehicles around 50% cheaper. Now that's, that's a bit of a game changer because um, recently I wrote as, as to why basically electric cars aren't economical in any sense. I think I think the, the prices will start to, to come at parity. And when, when that starts to happen, that's when you start to get cost parity with, with ICE vehicles and people will, I think, adopt EVs in droves. But secondly, I think it was one of the US think tanks. There's a professor there and he he's written basically mining in, in all of history of mining, the most it's ever increased in one year is 10%. And the increase we need in rare earths, lithium, cobalt, all that sort of stuff to produce the amount of batteries we need is something like for 1600% year on year. So, so we, we, we actually cannot dig the stuff out of the ground quick enough if it exists. So to your point, 
your very first point there, EVs aren't the solution. I think they're part of the solution. And I think that's the bit that needs to get across to everyone out there who's just really pushing the EV theme and the in the EV mandate. Importantly, I think the government needs to listen to this because the government's really gone down this EV path of you know zero emissions via EVs. McKinsey's backed it up. I wrote an article a few weeks back basically showing that EV batteries and EV cars around 70, 65 to 70% more polluting to produce in the build phase than an ICE car. And, and on average, it takes something like eight years to, to basically pay back from an emissions point of view. So they're, 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 they're not economical and they pollute more if you, if you include the build phase. Obviously in the use phase, they're way better. So if Australia is a true global citizen in this whole CO2 emission and, and net zero proposition, we need to take that, that build phase piece where these batteries are very dirty to produce. And if just, just Google some of these mines and places where they produce batteries, it's pretty horrific. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't go EV. I'm saying we've got to find a better way. Um, and, and EV's a solution, but it's not the solution. Um, there's got to be other ways to, to get to where we need to go. Even if, for example, you're, you're looking at hybrids and plug-in hybrids, I think the batteries are a quarter of the size of a typical Tesla. So you could produce four batteries for four cars versus one battery for one car. And then when you start looking at, and, and it gets really bad when you look at the, the at the at the Utes, the, like the F-150 Lightnings, uh, the Hummers, and those giant, those are like, apparently those are, those are like eight times the size of a normal battery. And I think the proposition of those things barreling down the road and running into a, a traditional ICE vehicle is a bit scary as well. As heavy the, as those things are, they're very, very heavy. And um, I don't know how the insurance is going to be able to handle all this stuff. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of problems to solve. But when you look at problems, I see opportunities. This is where dealers and OEMs can really start to, to you know, to, to make their mark in this whole situation. And, and I think it's, it's, it's a good thing. And we should all really start pushing towards it. But the important bit is just to be, I think we should be logical, understand what's happening, take your time, don't push one solution as the solution. I think the EV thing really needs to push push the brakes a little bit, in my view. Well, I think Europe have started to push back, and there was a lot of announcements about 2035 was going to be that all ICE vehicles would have to be replaced. But now, even there, they're starting to put a pushback and say they need the industry to come with a solution of how to get there and maybe even extend that times. You know, so I think that's starting to happen. It'll be interesting to see where that goes to. Well, and I think importantly, we even even really spoken about the infrastructure required as well. And, and, that, and that's the big missing piece. Power generation, for example, power generation in Australia and a lot of Western, even most, a lot of Western countries is still quite dirty. We use a lot of coal, we lose, use a lot of gas. So we got to find a solution to, to the power generation conundrum. One, there isn't enough power. And two, when we do produce it, the, the baseload stuff we, that, that, we, that we produce is very dirty. And then I think even more importantly is is the actual poles and wires. So the infrastructure, the the grid itself just can't handle having all these cars hooked up to it. And we're going to start really seeing seeing um, some 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 knock on effects from that. If I, I live in the suburbs, I live in Cronulla in Sydney, because I've, I've, I've been working with a electrical engineer from the University of Michigan. He's a nazi guy. He's quoted to me on several occasions that each each residential block in the US will cost at least a million dollars to convert the grid to upgrade it. And they're estimating something like a trillion dollars per state in the US. So you could probably easily just equate that to Australia. So we, you know, a trillion dollars per state, at least on the Eastern seaboard. So you're talking, you know, four trillion roughly to, to upgrade the, the grid. And then, you know, uh, quite a bit of money and time to upgrade the power generation. So the time and money aspect of this hasn't really been thought through well. Um, I mean, governments pass rule, uh, laws and rules and regulations saying um, no more emissions out of tailpipes by 2035. And Australia still hasn't really announced 
announced where they're heading. We, we think they're just going to copy uh, Europe and go 2035. Yeah, it's I, I don't know how we get there. I mean, it's only 12 years away, and 12 years sounds like a long time, but in the, not in at the, all. <laughs> in the infrastructure game, it's not that Not old. at all. Steve, they're fascinating topics that we're talking about because I think the, the agency one is a very valid one, and I think you, talk, you touched on one that is very important, and one that we talk about a lot is the viability of an OEM. And John and I have worked in a couple of large OEMs but also small OEMs, and the, and the tipping point always was very much from the overseas perspective is that you got to get to 1% share. Anything below yeah. 1% share, your overseas masters say you're in the danger zone. Yeah. And this is where we see brands that are sub 1% will either often transition in and out of the country. They'll come in as a as a national sales company or they'll sell to a to an importer or just general distributor. Yeah. So it's interesting that whole rationalization. There's a lot of brands come in when when things, you know, when tariffs disappeared and, and uh, it was very much a free market you know, with no more protection for local manufacturers and a lot of brands rushed in because it always is a, it seems to be a very attractive market it's a mature market and one that you know you can you can carve out a niche if you get it right but the big bogey is always exchange rate so depending on what what, what your ebbs and flows with your exchange rate and also with your your cost of uh, production and where you're sourcing your product they're the keys for, for the OMs in that sub one percent share which is often the the, uh, the danger zone but I'm keen to ask what are the key levers that OEMs and dealers should use to drive their profitability and why this will change with the freeing up of the supply of stock. What, what dealers and OEMs still have on their side is is riding out this wave of demand that was driven by by two things during the COVID pandemic. One, cashed up customers who either didn't go on holiday, you know, drew down on super, didn't go, you know, obviously they were locked up, so they were saving money, and they spent a lot of time on the internet looking at new cars and getting excited, so they they, they put down deposits. And then the, the other one was was the undersupply during COVID, which was driven by supply stock shortages. Those two things have collided to create this god awfully big order bank that all the Dealers are working through, so so that that they've got that going going their way, dealers um, and, and OEMs, and that's a massive benefit. So as supply comes, basically with with VFACs, you, you're going to see the the sales ride along with with supply. So whoever has supply will have will win the game up to a point, as as you'd expect, because at some point the supply meets the demand and the over and the and the, and the, the order books and, and the and the and the over orders sort of start to meet, and then we go back to what we were used to for as long as Adam was a boy. There was more supply than there were cars being sold, and then it does. Doesn't take long for for the discounting to come back into play, as you know, and it only takes one person to break rank. And and as much as much as dealers think that they won't, someone will because they'll they'll be under the pressure that everyone else is under. I think interestingly, recently I've seen some dealer financials, particularly the um, the listed groups, and you're starting to see floor plan interest showing back up in the in the PL. Literally, it's something that we just forgot existed. And I know uh, we just now had our tenth straight interest rate rise here in Australia, so we're up to three point six percent. And historically, that's very low, by the way. As much as people think, and they might be whinging and moaning and screaming about how high interest rates are now, we have to remember, and you guys are, have been around a bit longer than me, but when I was in university, I think the base rate we worked on was 8%, and that was you know in the early 2000s, uh, 2001. I think the important bit is interest rates are going to go up. They're going to go up further. Um, we, we can expect, I think in my mind, interest rates to be around that 4 to 5%. I think when I first came to, to Australia in 03, dealers were paying around that 7 8 maybe 9% floor plan interest rates. I actually remember when dealers would would actually use their excess cash as a deposit against their floor plan because the rate they would get was so good that they didn't put it in the bank. You know, these are the sort of things that dealers are going to start thinking about because the conditions that are actually propping up their business today are starting to ease. Supply is returning. Consumer confidence and, and the consumer balance sheet is starting to suffer. House prices are starting to drop. People are starting to feel the pinch from inflation and interest rate rises. So I think I think all this is going to un- unwind.
mind how to deal with pull levers. I think obviously make hay while the sun shines. We've got another six months in my mind potentially for this to go, maybe 12. If you listen to Eagers, they got two years. I'm not sure. I think all three of the big listed had at least 12 months in, in their order bank as, as, as they reported. I, I don't know. I mean, you guys worked at OEMs. They, they, can, they can produce those cars pretty quick and they can put them on boats pretty fast and they can arrive in the country pretty quickly as well. So I think they can, they can work through those order banks as quick as you as, as you would think they could. So it, I think all that will come to an end soon. And that's how it's going to change. I think dealers at the moment just need to continue to have really good practices around around their, their used cars. Watch the pricing of used cars. I think they've already come off quite a bit um, significantly in the States and less so significantly here. But in, in pockets, they've come down, I've seen about 20% with, with certain brands, certain, certain geographies. I think the important thing looking forward, dealers need to start getting back to basics, looking at their people, training their people. Um, they're going to learn how to sell cars again. We haven't sold a car for three years. Look at your processes and look at your expense control. If you're not doing those things right now, you're going to be suffering in 12 months time, in my view. Stephen, what about the actual orders? Because isn't there a risk? Because you might have this big order bank, but if those people don't no longer qualify for that loan or you know, finance that deal anymore, there could be a risk in their order bank. Do you think it's, is there a way to go through those big orders or not really? Is it very difficult to do so? You're spot on. Depending on who you talk to, I've heard as much as 20% fallover rate at the moment. And that's for a myriad of reasons. Number one, the, the car has gone through, you ordered it 12 months ago, and the car has gone through three or four price rises. So the car that you thought you were buying for 50 is now being sold to you for 57, right? So it might be out of your price range. Two, the trade-in you had, which you were quoted on the day, yeah, we'll buy that when, when your new car arrives and we're going to offer you 30 grand for it. It's now 25 or it might be 20. And then three, the most important one that I think is you just mentioned, these customers are going to be shocked by how much the interest rates are. The, the average interest rate at the moment is 10, 10 plus percent. And if you go to a big four bank, they're going to quote you around 14, 15. The best place to finance a car at the moment is at the car dealership. And it has been for a while, but car dealers and captive finance uh, companies are, are offering better rates than the banks right now. And I think that that's something the dealers need to really focus on. That they, they, They've got the, the upper hand in, with the customer to get them set at a better rate. And I think that'll help them get a lot of, a lot of deals over the line. When you have, when you have a, a triple bogey of price increases, used car price declines and interest rates going up, and, and then you add in, my house is probably worth less today than it was a year ago. Every time I go to the grocery, I feel like I need to take out another mortgage. It's it's going to be difficult to sell. And, and that's why I said, we got to learn how to sell again, because the, the old days of sitting back and waiting for customer orders to fly through the door are, are gone. That just it isn't going to happen for a, a period, hopefully not a long period, but for a period, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be really difficult for dealers. Now, Stephen, where do you see the future of the industry? We're looking at this current bubble that's still a unique bubble, and it's a fantastic one for OEMs and dealers. You've mentioned that it's contracting, and the speed of contraction is the one that you know, depends on what happens from a rate. And, and you're, you're right, the triple whammy of trade-ins, finance, and also price increases. Mm. But where do you see the future going beyond 18 months? I think well, I, where I see the future, and, and we talked about OEMs and, and where you think the level of OEM volume legitimizes having them to have a, a national sales company or NSC in Australia. Those are all very interesting questions because where I see the future going is, is there will be a, a big shift to EV because it just it's legislated. It's going to happen. Even if they don't legislate it in Australia, it's been legislated in the places where cars are built. So unfortunately, we're going to get those cars. Fortunately or fortunately, it doesn't matter how you look at it. The cars you will 
will be able to buy will be electric or they'll be something like an electric car. The issue with electric cars, as you would probably already know, is um, from a standard uh, scheduled servicing point of view, an ICE vehicle needs five services. So the customer comes back to your dealership once a year and, and they see your they, they see your service department, they see your parts department, and they and you actually interact and, and, and work with the, the customer. With the EV, you, you get two services in five years. You get one on the second year and you get one on the fourth year. So the issue I see here is in particular, so so you have a around a 20 to 25% drop in labor hours over that period for the customer, ICE versus EV. But importantly, you have about a 60 to 70% drop in parts. So so the, the the second year service for an EV is just basically a check, top up of fluids, and off you go. The year four service is is a is a more extensive check. They they check the battery in bits and pieces, top up of fluids, and then they they replace your, your cabin air filter, and that's it. Off you go. I think the important bit in the next 18 months, importantly, and then for the future, CRM is going to be huge. So OEMs and dealers need to get their CRM watertight. And I think dealers need to get their a dealer CRM watertight. I think dealers at the moment probably have a CRM because their OEM tells them they have to have a CRM. They actually need to have a CRM for their OEM, but they also, I think, in my view, need to have a CRM for themselves, which is better than any CRM that, that exists out there today because owning the customer is where, where this is all going to go to. And, and when, when EVs and, and these vehicles get, get into the market, no one's going to want to own, they will, but they won't. No one's going to want to own an, an EV in the end because they're all going to be homogenous. You're going to have, a, you might have a better, a bigger battery or a, a longer range battery or a faster battery, but they're all going to drive the same. There's not going to be a real disparate version of, of vehicles, if, if that makes sense. Like an EV6, an iconic six and uh and a tesla plaid whatever the, the very fast one they all go the same speed you push the pedal the thing flies it, it's it's a, it's a light bulb right it just goes and they're fantastic I, I, i've driven few they're fantastic cars but i guess the point will be he who owns a customer or he or she who owns a customer will, will win and in your levers will be probably some slick marketing but more will be more around price and, and your biggest lever will be the relationship the people the processes and your crm that will win the day i think the switch to ev is is where it's going to really change the industry, it's going to change the OEMs, it's going to change the distributors, it's going to change the, the, the retailer. It's what I just talked about earlier with the servicing and the parts. If you think about the amount of parts that are sold currently by OEMs, that's pretty much a lot of their profit. Um, not currently at the moment, they're making a lot of money selling the cars, but in, in history and you're not knocking your head, the profit was in the part. Absolutely. So you take the parts out of the equation, what does the OEM do? It's very difficult, right? It's, it makes the economics of the whole, the, 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 the current franchise model not work. And when you start thinking about the other reasons why there's a franchise model. So there's a franchise distribution model because it was it was an internal combustion engine that burnt parts and it broke down. The cars broke down. They broke down a lot more than than, than they do now. The cars are very, very, very reliable today. But you still need someone locally representing your brand to fix your, your, your customer's issues and to service your customers because your product keeps breaking down and burning through parts. So if that doesn't exist, do you need, do you need dealers anymore? That's why you get the Tesla situation where they're going direct. And the agency situation where where more traditional legacy OEMs have to have to transition from what is a franchise to basically what will be a direct model or a version of a direct model via agency. I'll hold up my phone, but when's the last time you can't really see it because of my, my background? But when's the last time you got this thing serviced? You don't. I, and so so I think the, the point will be when this stops working, I take it in, I hand it back to Apple and I say, Can I have another one, please? And then they'll go service it and potentially give it or sell it to someone else. So that'll be the same thing that happened in my view, potentially will be the same thing that happens with, with 
with, with a lot of cars and a lot of customers will, will treat their cars as, as a white good almost. They won't bring it in for the second year service. They probably won't bring it in for the fourth year service because when they bring it in for the fourth year service, they'll hand it back to you and say, give me a new one. So you, so it's the first time the car gets service is when they're handing it back to trade it in to buy a new one. CRM, customer experience, all that stuff in between. You, and dealers need to find ways and OEMs need to find ways to handle the customer and, and, and give experiences. And that, that's why you're seeing at the moment, you're seeing EV sold at the luxury level because that's the only place where there's enough margin to do these sort of things. If you're going mass market, if you're MG selling an EV for 35, 40 grand, there's not a lot in it left to have you know customer events, customer nights, things like that. That's where it's going. I, I think if I'm an OEM, if I'm a dealer, I'm really seriously looking at CRM and looking at how I treat customers, how I manage customers, that, that whole piece for the next 18 months, five years, so that when the EV transition really starts to take take hold, when it gets over that 25% level of EV uptake, that's when the, everything starts to change. And at 50%, it's too late. If you haven't made changes by 50%, when you're selling 50% EV and ICE, um, as a dealer, your business is completely changed and you probably won't be viable anymore. So yeah, now's the time to act. So Stephen, just with that, with the because you've got absorption as a, as a key factor, we're just talking about that's going to disappear. How important then, because it is the trading and the used car business for a dealer, because I suppose that's the beauty of the name of a dealer. Dealers buy and they sell. So if we're talking about a dealer and their used car business, is this an opportunity for them to really focus on doing something with that? That's where dealers will remain dealers. Dealers, in my view, over time, will remain a car dealer of their franchise brands, which there will be some that will remain. I think most of the Chinese brands will, will remain franchise for as long as they can to gain market share because they actually understand that dealers sell cars. But then they will remain dealers, as you said, in their used car business. So their used car business will become more and more and more important. That's the, that's where you will have control. And then you'll have representation of all your agency and direct brands where you act as, as, a, as a logistics provider and a delivery point and an experience center. And they're going to rent your premises off you and in some space where they can display some vehicles. The, the idea of having a salesperson for a direct and agency brand makes no sense. Like, what, why would you? Because the commissions you get in the in the marginality of the whole the whole process doesn't make doesn't make it work. Now, an experience specialist or whatever they're going to call themselves, geniuses, or they give them lots of names. But the person who can give the, the customer the experience of the vehicle, explain how it works, go through that whole process, and deliver a really good outcome for the customer and the brand and the dealer, that's the person that you want. And, and I think that that's where it's going to head. So you're 100 right. Used cars is where it's going to be, and that's where that's where the focus is going to be because that's where the money is. Because service stops where profit ends. That's 100 true. If there's no money in it, why would you do it? And dealers will will basically will hang on with agency for as long as it, it still makes money. The second it doesn't make money, they'll shift their focus to something different. They'll work on their agent, their, their franchise brands, and their used cars, your used car business, and, and that's where they'll go. Well, every, every big group has a used car concept or a used used car play within their business. There's a dozen or so out there, and then there's other entrants trying to get into this market like Karma. Yeah, there's there's heaps of them, and and you're going to see more and more of that because that's where the money is going to be. All these dealers are sitting there looking, and everybody's saying going to really impact their service business. But how does a dealer really go about carrying his business for the future? Does he look at his capacity and start trying to forecast capacity in his workshop so that he can reduce his facility side and bring in other franchises? Yeah, exactly that, actually. They actually have to, to have a plan, which is unusual for 
for for dealers. <laughs> it's very unusual for this industry having a plan uh, beyond the end of the month um, and getting through this month. So I, I think firstly you look at your people. You look at the people you have in your business, and, and you you don't you know, obviously don't don't go out and look at your people and say I'm getting rid of all these people because they're they're not going to be the right people for the EV world. It, there's a transition period here. We got five years, maybe even ten years, depending on how how uptake goes to make the change. But look look at the makeup of your of your business. Look at the people in your business. It's a different set of people that you need to have in your dealership. The, the workshop is going to be the most affected uh, initially, and then specifically over time, the workshop. So the techs you have today need to be trained. They need to be trained to how to service EVs, more more like IT guys. Like they're, they're going to be IT guys that can turn wrenches, which would be cool. I think I think it'll be a really interesting job for for kids going and growing up today that you can actually be you know working on these high tech large pieces of, of machinery, still using your hands, still working you know in an environment that that is you know quite quite interesting, but then also having a very very tech aspect to it. Um, so so yes, people. Do you need as many people as you have today? No, <laughs> you're going to need a lot less people. Do you need facilities the same size as you have today? No, nope. you're going to need a lot less facilities. So if you're a big dealer group and say you own 10 dealership sites in a certain area of uh, like a metro area or over a certain geography, you're going to, you're going to start consolidating all your dealerships onto one site or or very few sites. I and mean, if you just look at look at uh, what's happening in Europe, where they they've transitioned from single site service centers for each brand to one site with multiple brands, and and, and to the point, and I think I've shared around, and I could share it with you, John and, and and Mark. Service centers have 10 or 11 brands on the outside of, of the service center, where because they basically just service all of them, and that's where it's going to go. And then potentially, you know, you might have four dealers in a row on Main Strip, say Parramatta Road, for example. They might all just you know go in together and build a service center for all their brands, and then convert all their other properties into something different. So highest and best use of dealership properties is going to be a huge theme going forward. You know, what are we going to do with these properties? Residential, commercial, schools, hospitals. There's a lot of things you can do with these gigantic sites. So you, you don't need the, the big sites anymore, in my view. Um, this, again, is, is over time, 10 years plus down the road. And I guess we've seen a little bit of, of what this is doing to service departments already, um, having having less cars going through. Because in the last three years, we've sold 600,000 less cars than we would have in a normal trading period. So if you've taken 2019 and just kept it level, we would have sold 600,000 more cars than we did. And that whole of cars that were never sold, which basically basically don't exist now because they're 600,000 cars short for our, our used car car park. It's it's about a 30% hit in the 23-24 period of those cars that, that dealers like to service in, the, in that one to five year range. So we're, we're already seeing what that's doing to service departments today. Talk to any dealer right now. They'll say, well, yeah, my service department's not going so well. Well, those are the cars you didn't sell in 2020, 2021, and part of 2022. They're not feeding through your dealership at the moment. And you're not going to you're not going to service them. So th- there's already some rationalization around how big does my service department need to be today? Now we're selling 6% EVs. You're not going to service those cars either, in my view. You might you might repair them if they're if they're damaged or they got warranty issues or they got parts issues, but you're not going to service them. As, as that EV number, and you know, everyone's going to applaud as we start adopting EVs, but as that goes up, that means something significant has to change at dealerships because you have a, a, an entire service department that is probably not needed. You might need half of it. So, you know, you just start amalgamating, consolidating and changing those sites to something different. So I'm not saying again, I'm not saying this is the end of dealers. It's it's far from it. It's it's a new opportunity. It's a, it's a shift. It's a change. Dealers got to do something different. OEMs have to do something different. It just means that everything's got to change because because the models changed, the the customers have changed, the the product has changed. So we as the industry have to change, and we should lead that change in, in the end. Obviously, got a lot of knowledge in the industry. You've worked with a lot of dealers. So why should OEMs and dealers engage with picture partners to help address these future challenges in the industry? I've, I've got a history. 
have, I've been in Australia since 03. Originally worked at Horwith way back in the day. So a lot of people listening to this might know. When I left it, I went to work for uh, CNH Industrial. And CNH Industrial is, is Case, New Holland, and, and commercial vehicles, which were Iveco. So I worked in dealerships at Iveco, and, and I was, was the head of finance for Iveco. And I, I had a couple of ag dealerships as well that I worked for, uh, worked in, and I was the head of finance. Plus, I, I did a lot of the operational stuff. So then I went to KPMG. I didn't learn my lesson from being in the big four at Deloitte. I, I went back to the big four again. But then I wanted to go back to my roots, back to the Horvath days when, I, when we had the most fun, when I felt like we were doing the best work for our clients. So Pitcher Partners is in that mid-market. We're, we're, we're number nine. We're, we're big enough to matter, but, but small enough to care if, if I can be cheesy. But most importantly, my entire team, everyone's worked in a dealership or they've worked in an OEM. So we actually know what it's like to be on the other side of the table. When I'm telling you this is what you should do, I've actually done it. And I actually know what works and what doesn't work. And I'm not going to tell you something that doesn't work. And I'm happy to take the feedback. I actually I actually understand how the processes work. I know what the people you deal with. I know that half your day or three quarters of your day or your entire day is dealing with HR issues rather than actually doing your job or dealing with OEMs or, or dealing with finance or dealing with head office. So so I, I get all that. That's why I think we're unique because, because number one, we're, we're mid-tier. So we're more like the industry. I can move very agilely. I'm very entrepreneurial. I've got opinions. I can actually state my opinions. I don't have my hands and my and my mouth taped up because I can't say anything because because the brand doesn't want me to say that. Um, but more importantly, we've actually we've actually walked in your shoes. Even in terms of your team, are you going to put it in a format that can help dealers reach? Because you spoke about them going to have to restructure their business and scale back and cut their showrooms and that. Or, are you going to be able to offer those type of services too? Yeah, I mean that is more traditionally just tr- like strategy type work. So yeah, I, I won't be the guy that goes in and, and restructures the team. I'll, I'll be the guy who 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 helps you evaluate your business, understand what your needs are, what what your property strategy should look like, what your acquisition strategy should look like. Gone are the days, in my view, of acquiring dealerships just to get scale or just to buy more dealerships. Scale is important. Let's let's not underplay that. Scale is very, very important. Dealers, dealer groups need to get very big to to, to survive what's about to happen. Because and, and the important thing is when you get through to the other side, if we think we're making good profits today, the profits on the other side of this are going to be enormous because you're actually going to own the customer. Like the the most profitable, the most valuable company in the world is Apple. And there's a reason for that because they own you. They own the customer. They actually, and we talked about CRM, we talked about the experience. They've actually nailed it. And if dealers can nail this, if the if the industry can nail this, there's a lot of there's a lot of profit, there's a lot of revenue in it for everyone. So yes, yeah, so scale is important, but but scale with a strategy is the important bit. So am, am I going luxury? Am I going to own this brand for this region? Or am I going to be the biggest dealer in this region? So th- there needs to be a strategy. Is, is there a property strategy behind it? Do I have a people strategy behind it? Am I training people? Am, am I actually if am, am I developing Developing my people to be who they need to be when we get to to where we want to go. There's just not enough of that sort of thought happening. I think, and then then the, on the other flip side of that, educating customers. There's just not enough educating of customers out there, primarily on just the basics. Customers and people I know actually, which is quite scary, don't even know what a credit score is. And, and to me, that that sort of stuff is the basics. We need to be educating our customers as to what a credit score is, what is finance, how does it work, you know, why is it better to finance at a dealership uh, versus uh, versus um, a, a bank, all, all that sort of stuff. Educ- Educating customers, educating your your and, and developing your staff is going to be paramount going forward. Stephen, that's super impressive. That uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation today. It's 
It's it's great because it actually validates us for, for a lot of the stuff that we've been saying over the journey in this podcast. And you just summarize and nail it perfectly. So the whole EV conundrum, the finance, that is how, why it's so important. We actually had, the, had a conversation around that and said, oh, well, let's get a finance expert on. And we did a podcast very much on that so that there's understanding because we found that there was a, a fundamental lack of knowledge about how finance works within the OEM in, uh, and also dealer land. You had your F&I guy that knew it, but everyone else was, was, was seen as like a dark art that, oh, that's that's all, that's really, that's magic over there. So we don't get involved in that. And, and just how important it is and to uh, to consider. And even just when you said that you know, floor plan had disappeared off the balance sheet for, for so long at interest expense and it's creeping back. And yet you're right, we vividly remember you know, when there's an oversupply way back in 2017, 18 and 19, that floor plan was a killer for many, many dealerships. And uh, and you know you had vehicles that were you know, pushing 12 months in age stocks. So, so any margin on that car is eroded in floor plan charges, uh, well and truly. Some of the Challenger brands where the, the vehicles weren't moving quickly. And I think I think a really important note is is dealers need, to, as, as I think you mentioned, 18, 19 when floor plan and stock was a killer. I think dealers need to start thinking about going back to the to the old the old basic of manual release potentially. I was chatting to one of my clients and um, and he mentioned that in the last four weeks his his floor plan increased by about fifty percent. Started to see some impact on his grosses. He had too much stock, so you know basically you you can move on to manual release. Obviously, you have to there's a few hurdles you have to jump through there, but it does cost you it, it does cost money to go on manual release. In the end, um, not having that car sitting in your stock for six months or twelve months or however long it might you know a couple months um, is actually better to, to to pay to pay that that fee for for manual release. I know that's not going to make any OEMs happy me saying that, but um, oh, oh yeah, manual not. release. But <laughs> but as a dealer, you know, I think expense management is going to be the the new. The, it'll be back in vogue in July, guaranteed. It'll be back like around July, and, and actually quite interesting. I've seen a lot, a lot more ads popping up recently for car brands. Um, so I think we'll 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 see the uh, the resurrection of EFS in the financial year sale yes. that that'll come back, <laughs> and uh, you know the the one percent finance deals and the tradey packs and all that stuff. That that's all going to come back in my in my view. And and I think dealers for the last three years we haven't cared about about four plan. We haven't cared about stock, but it used to be the old the old adage. Um, every time you walk past a car, it costs you twenty five. $30,000 car at 6% floor plan is, is about $25 a day. So if you walk past that car every single time you walk past it every day, it's 25 bucks. So you better sell it. You know, so I think it's really important that dealers start to really think about these things again. It gets back to John, our first ever podcast where we talked about you learn good habits in bad times and bad habits in good times. That's right. So That's so we've had a, we've had a little bit of a bad habit time to to get yeah, forget how to sell and, and not, not go down that path of actually training our people because they've just been taking all orders and maximizing grosses. So who needs to train them? Well, you're right. It's it's And it's owning that CRM, getting that CRM system and engaging with that customer for that journey for the new car, the used car, the servicing, and just maintaining that relationship so no one else steals them. That's that's a critical one. I think that's a really great point and a great great value idea that you know, anyone listening should definitely take away. And I, I think the good bit is I, I, see, I see a lot of change and a lot of difficult change coming, but through that, there's a heck of a lot of opportunity out there. I do see a tie up between, obviously, the banks, the the power generation companies, so so the the, the, the utilities, the the OEMs, the dealers, um, and all together working together, basically owning the customer payment, owning the wallet, 
um, and then just, just providing a device. It, it, there's some interesting concepts out there about this, and I think that that's that's where it's all heading. And you're, you're heading into the micropayment phase of of, of owning car ownership. Um, like I said, I think you know you, you won't be owning a, a very nice, sexy car like it's that's behind Mark. It'll be a bit more homogenous. It might look good, but it'll, they're all going to drive the same. They're all going to sort of be really fast and very you know, high performing. But when it comes to what you drive or what or which which vehicle you're in, it'll be more about brand and experience then um, then it's got a loud engine and it goes really fast. It's spot on, Stephen. That's no, a great, and, and I think you articulated perfectly the the challenges and for the key areas to be concentrating on and, and uh, be very mindful and aware of. Not a problem at all. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Hopefully you got as much out of the conversation with Steve as we did. It's amazing the points that he raised around EVs, changing business model, maintenance, and already the loss that we've got from a volume perspective in the car park. If you enjoyed what you heard, subscribe to our channel on YouTube, Spotify, and iTunes. Thanks for listening.